We, this morning, we did the simpler forms of animal architecture. We did the burrows. We did the tubes that are built around animals' bodies. We did some of the uh, structures inside wood that are dug out by animals. Very simple, by and large, even though we started to get more complicated with plant nests. Now we're really going to start to crank it up to get to see some of the really, really complicated structures that have been built by animals. And we're going to start with mud nests. Are we going? Yeah, it's looking good up there. Excellent. All right, so now we're going to start looking at structures that are put together with mud. Now, this right here looks pretty messy. It's kind of all kind of globular mud stuck to a wall, but this is actually an architectural form built by an insect. This is actually their home for their young. This is a type of wasp, and there's a number of different wasps that use mud to create their homes. And what they will do is they will collect a wet pellet of mud, and then they will plaster it against a, uh, a, a wall, smash it into all the nooks and crannies, and then that will be the spot where they will have a nice chamber for their young to live. In this picture, you can see where the darker mud has been put down. That's the fresh, wet mud, and the other parts are drier where it's had a chance to uh, solidify. Now here is a chamber that has been broken open because it shows each individual chamber that has been put in by these various, uh, in the insects as they have divided up into chambers. Each one of those chambers will hold one of their young and their young will develop in there with whatever food that has been put in for them. Now a number of different wasps go out and specialize in catching spiders. They sting the spider and immobilize it with their venom and then they carry that spider and sometimes it's a very heavy burden to carry to get it to where they need to to plug it into their structure. And so they bring it along, and here's one who has returned to her mud nest that she has uh, previously constructed, and she works her way down to the end of it, crawls inside, puts in her food source in there, and then lays her egg, and then seals it off, and then her baby will be able to hatch and grow out of this in a way that will be very well protected. You can see then these holes running down these tubes, that's where the individual larvae, once they're fully developed, break out of their chamber and then uh, begin their adult life. So this is one that has been well used. Some of them are extremely elegant insects. These are the organ pipe mud dauber wasps. And they're called this because they make these rows of mud that look like organ pipes. And each one will come and get a different bit of mud from a different spot, and so you can get these different colors of brown and white and orange, depending on what mud they sourced it from. And then this will be their very elegant structure that they put together. Then you have potter wasps. Now, potter wasps are a little bit smaller than the mud daubers, but they also use mud, but they do it in a very elegant way. They actually are a potter. They create a little pot. They attach it to a wall, and this is hollow inside here, and they will then put their pollen and nectar that they've gathered and stick it inside, and then they lay their egg, and that will be where their young grows up. They even make a little rim around the outside that will help to divert any predator from finding the entrance to that particular opening and finding their way inside. And these guys are quite small. This is the size of a dime, so it's not very large at all. Then you have birds that use mud. And this is a large bird nest that is found in tropical areas, a large mound about a foot high, maybe sometimes two foot high, made by a flamingo. 
and flamingos pile up all this mud into a pile and make a little concave hole in the top and that's where they're going to lay their egg and then that chick will hatch out of that and for a while they will stay right on top of that mud tower and then eventually they will come out and begin life on their adult way after that. Then you have other birds which use mud. These are called chuffs and they are found in Australia. And we were just fortunate to be able to see these guys one time on our trip down there recently. And notice the beautiful red eyes that these birds have. And they build a large mound of mud on a tree branch, and it's a foot and a half across. And that's where they have their nests and eggs, and it's very, very sturdy and solid, and you can see it from long distances away up in the tree trunks. Then there are the barn swallows and cliff swallows and other forms of swallows which actually make up their nest with pellets of mud and stick it into a underhang underneath some sort of a protected shelter area. And this will allow them to be able to be out of the weather. And so some of them will just build a platform like this where the uh, chick will then sit inside of it and it's open on the top and that's where they are gonna be raising their young. But some of them will actually cover up the whole entranceway with mud so there's only a small entrance where a, uh, a predator has less likelihood of getting inside. And in that area, they will then be able to raise their young inside those various nests. And this is something you find quite commonly where there is any kind of an overhang where these guys are able to do it either on a bridge or somebody's house because they need to be protected from the rain. If the rain comes down and hits those mud nests, it's gonna dissolve, fall apart, and they're gonna lose their entire nest for that year. Now this is what happens in natural conditions away from our forms of architecture. They find some sort of a rock cliff where there's an overhang and then you can look straight up and see all these nests crowded together like this. And this is something quite common in desert and cliff type habitats across North America. So these guys are also very specialized in their mud dwellings. The next group we're gonna look at are other types of nests, miscellaneous. And when we're looking at this, sometimes we are surprised by who are architects out there in nature. And these, these next ones may quite surprise you. Have you ever thought of fish as an architect? Well, there's a bunch of fish that are found in freshwater habitat areas that will make a round, wide pit in the shallows of a pond or stream, and they will get rid of all the dirt and all the debris, and only the rocks will be left there. And then the males, this is all the males doing this, the males will then display to passing females that come take a look at my nest. I've done a great job, just like what we were looking at this morning, with the weaver birds. And he will be keeping it very clean and very fastidious because the female comes along and lays her eggs inside that nest and then he keeps it uh, free from dirt and debris and algae and whatever parasites might come along and so he's going to be guarding that nest sometimes with her help sometimes not. Sometimes you can get a whole row of them. Here's a male fish on his nest, and back here is another male fish on his nest, and they can be all along the lake shore, where each one is saying, come on, take a look at my nest, it's better than his. And so this can be quite uh, interesting to see them chasing each other away from each other's nest because they're a little bit too close for comfort sometimes. There are a whole bunch of fish found in freshwater areas in the world called cichlids. And there are hundreds of species of cichlids, and many of them are nest builders. And so you have a lot of different types of these cichlids which are making elaborate nests, and some of them will then be making something that is uh, taken care of by both parents or by one parent. Some of them are very elaborate, some of them are very simple, but all are forms of architecture in one way or another. And so this is something that uh, quite a few fish are actually nest builders and architects. 
But now what about this design? What is going on with that? This is a very geometrical pattern that is found in the ocean in very uh, deep water areas off of Japan. And divers swimming around looking at this said, what made that? Because it's way too orderly to be made by natural processes. But when you look at this, it just is just way too far away from anybody to figure out what was going on. They went back to it several times until they finally found who was making this particular pattern. It was a little bitty puffer fish six inches long. Now this puffer fish male comes along and he makes this with his body by wriggling his body through the sand and making it into these elegant patterns and troughs and valleys and hills and eventually has this extraordinary design that he has put together. And this is just to get a female to come and choose him. This is not actually for a nest in any way. This is purely a attractant billboard to get a female to look at him more than the next guy. And this was truly an astonishing way of animal architecture using art in its pure form to get a female to choose him. A truly extraordinary thing that has only been discovered in the last few years. How about this for an architect? An alligator? That doesn't make much sense, right? But actually, mother alligators are great art architects. They will come up to shore when the breeding season is ready, and they will pile up a huge mound of vegetation and brush and debris into a pile on the stream bank, and then they're gonna lay their eggs inside of that mound and then cover it all up, and then it serves almost like a compost pile. It actually heats up and keeps their eggs warm and incubates them, and then at this point, they'll be nearby in the water waiting for uh, the eggs to be ready to hatch. And when the eggs hatch, they're actually communicating to their mother. They're making little quirky noises inside the eggs and the mother is responding to them with deep rumbles. And actually she will talk to the, her babies before they are actually hatching out of their shell. A very amazing form of communication. Cayman are South and Central American forms of alligator, but they do exactly the same thing, building up their nest mound on the bank of the shore, and again, opening it up when it's ready to hatch and protecting their babies from any harm. Crocodiles are also nest builders, but they use a pile of sand, and they put together a huge mound of sand on the stream bank, and then they lay their eggs inside of it, and when the eggs are ready to hatch, again, they're gonna be well protected by their parent waiting for them to come out of their eggshells. And the parents will actually pick up their babies in their mouth and carry them into the water and get them to a safe spot in the water and continue to guard them after that. There's a very few monitor lizards or any type of predator who's gonna come along and challenge this mother next to the eggs that she is guarding. Maybe perhaps the most incredible architect of all is something we would never dream would be an architect, a snake. There is one type of snake which is an architect. It is the king cobra found over in Asia. And the king cobra mother gets ready to lay her eggs and she spins her body into a circle around a pile of brush and then she contracts that body until she's piled up leaves and branches into a pile in the center of her body. At that point she now has a mound of vegetation and then into that she will lay her eggs and then she will stay either nearby or actually coiling up her body around those nests that she has put together in a very well-protected nest. How many predators do you know who are gonna challenge a 10 to 15 foot king cobra to go after a pile of eggs? That doesn't seem very likely. So we really have some of the most incredible architects out there that until recently we didn't even know how intricate their lives actually were. 
Mammals. We've been talking a lot about a number of unusual types of animals, and, but we haven't really looked at mammals. Now, mammals, we would think, would be great architects, and there are, in fact, a few which do very well. Muskrats are a form a, of water rodent, and they actually build up mounds of vegetation in the water, sticking just up above the surface, and they're going to use that as a feeding platform where they bring their food onto the surface and eat it above the water surface so they're not having to swim around while they're eating their food. A pretty simple construction. Then there are the primates. There are a number of different primates. The gorillas, the chimpanzees, and the orangutans all do a certain primitive form of architecture. And they will do this. Evening time comes, they're time to go to bed, they will climb up into their tree, and at that point they start to bend over branches and break things down into a platform in their tree, sometimes very high up in the tree, sometimes fairly low. And at that point then they have a nice little bed to sleep on. And they will sometimes have branches over their bodies to, to keep the rain off. Orangutans are famous for that. They'll hold a branch with a big leaf over their head, like an umbrella to keep the rain off. But uh, all of these guys are using these forms basically for a nighttime roost. Daytime, they will sometimes put together an even simpler nest, but each day when they're done, they leave their nest behind, they walk away, they go through the jungle, and then they end up somewhere totally different the next night and build a new one. So it's a very temporary structure they're putting together and is not very sophisticated. So these animals, which we would think are extremely sophisticated, the uh, great apes, are not doing an extremely sophisticated form of architecture, but it is a form of architecture. Then you have a nest like this, which looks a lot like a bird nest, but is in fact a nest of a squirrel. Squirrels put together nests in tree branches, and they will build different types of nests, whether it is summer or winter. A, a summertime nest is going to be a lot thinner than a wintertime nest, because he's going to line that wintertime nest with a lot of debris and warm material to keep it insulated and keep it protected from the cold winter temperatures. But in the summertime, when it's hot and you don't want to overheat, at that point you want just something bare minimum protection to keep off the chill of night or the elements, and so you're you're going to build something that is much more simple for the summertime than you do for the wintertime. Then there are the harvest mice. Harvest mice are small mice found in grassland habitats around the world, and they put together a ball of, of, of grass stems into a very comfy nest that they're going to raise their babies in and allow themselves to have a good sheltered place to come back to every night. Some of them will actually make a nest inside a bird nest, and that's a very protected place that they will be very happy to live in and don't want to let a nest like that get away from them. Then there is this pile of debris, and this is a very formidable pile of debris because it's, it contains a lot of choya stems as well as the branches and other debris. Who would be making something like this? Well, it's a wood rat. These are the famous pack rats that take something shiny and take it back to their home and leave it there. And they are very fastidious architects because they will find some sort of a cave shelter or some place to be able to pile up all the debris and give themselves a very firm shelter that will allow themselves to be protected. And they will also go to a cactus thicket and find the densest part of the cactus thicket to build their nest because no predator wants to go through all of that to get to any kind of prey. And then the, even the most amazing ones, the desert wood rats, are actually going to be taking these stems of choya and piling it up as part of their nest. They are covered by choya stems and no predators going through that ever. These are very long-lasting nests that they actually 
bequeath to the next generation. Their young will inhabit it, and those the young of those, the grandchildren from generation to generation, will live in the same nest, so that actually archaeologists go to pack rat nests to find artifacts from 300 years ago, because the nests last that long. Silk structures. Now, up to this point, we've been looking at animals that use objects out there or dig in some sort of a ground or tree structure. But there are a few animals which actually make their own structure with substances that they produce themselves, the silk structures. Silk is something that is produced by a gland in an animal that is a liquid that will harden into a hard elastic substance when exposed to oxygen. And so we have web spinners. These little insects are tiny and you will never see one unless you really know what you're looking for. I've only seen them three times in my entire life. Very, very rare. And they have very big hands. And those hands are actually silk producing glands. They have 200 glands per hand. And they're actually going to use it as weavers to actually weave silk back and forth. And they make an entire structure that they live in that the entire colony of web spinners will have as their protection and this is something that they make entirely from the silk that they produce with their own hands. And these guys are extraordinary little animals. I actually have an entire segment of these guys in my DVD called Little Known Miracles of God's Creation. So I'm not going to talk any more about these at this point. Then there are the other uh, moths, which are tent spinners as well, web spinners. This is a tent caterpillar moth, the adult form, and here is the larval form. This is much more obvious. Most of us have seen this on branches of trees where there is a big mass of silk inhabited by quite a few little caterpillars. And this is um, a very well-protected, very dense tent that is put together with all the branches inside there serving as tent poles. And these little larvae will live inside these uh, tents and they will come out to feed upon the green leaves, and if danger threatens, they will retreat back inside the silk, and it gives them a nice little secure shelter. When they get big enough and old enough to transform into the adult, they will abandon this, and this will be left behind, and they will then transform into these very drab, very small moths that most of us will never even notice. Very uh, unusual little creatures that end up looking very ordinary. A number of different insects use silk that they produce to wrap up various plants, in this case a fern, and they will wrap it up into a ball and then inside that they will live very secure and protected from whatever danger might threaten that particular animal. But then there are others that use silk but don't produce it. Now birds don't produce any silk, but the hummingbirds make use of silk that has been produced by others. Hummingbirds will actually go out and find silk from spider webs and then will pull it off the spider webs and then they will use it to help construct their own nests. And they will use whatever debris or little plant bits and then they will use the silk to anchor it. And this gives them a very tight little nest that is very strong. Inside it they will lay their little eggs and that will be a nice little spot for them to have their eggs and grow out their little chicks. These guys can be of course very sociable. You can have one in your back uh, window Window. This one right here was right outside somebody's window on a banister, and here's her tiny little nest covered with spider webs. So they are an example of very sophisticated architecture where the animals themselves are not making something, but they're utilizing something made by others as part of their architectural structure. 
Now, those are the miscellaneous animals that use silk, but of course there is the master silk builders, the ultimate silk weavers, the spiders. And now we're really getting into the greatest of all the natural wonders when it comes to architecture. I could do nothing but show you an entire program of just spiders, and it would prove the basic foundation of my presentation. There are so many different types of spiders spinning different types of web, each one doing their own thing, that it really becomes a a very powerful argument by itself that evolution can't work. And that is because some of these guys don't use it for much besides wrapping up their eggs and protecting their babies when they are before they hatch, and they just use the silk for that purpose and that purpose alone. But most of them are using silk to create the most elaborate insect-catching structures ever found in nature. And that is what we're going to be looking at specifically because we find a huge, amazing variety that God has designed. Now, the typical silk weavers that we're mostly familiar with when we think of a spider are the orb weavers. Now, these come in a variety of different forms. Some of them are very spiny with weird body shapes. And some of them have these elaborate colors and patterns. This one has a really hard abdomen, and it's a very elaborate case that protects their, their, their body. Some of them are so clunky looking that when they crawl around, they're top heavy and they can barely move because their body is so uh, weighted with the protection armor that they carry around with them. But some of them are more elongated. They have a longer, thinner body like this. But the typical orb waver that most of us think of are the round-bodied ones that uh, we see out in our gardens building up a round silk web. And this is how it works. A spider is capable of producing up to seven different types of web with their abdomen. And they're able to make sticky web, or stretchy web, or um, clustered web, or hackled. And it's like each type has a different function and a different use. And so they will make long, strong anchor wires, which will anchor the entire structure. And that's what they do first, and get it hooked up to the branches. And then they will make these radials, which are non-sticky radials that go out from a center spot to these anchor lines. Once they've put together that whole non-sticky structure, then they add the sticky web. At this point now, they're going to start on the outside and they're going to start going around in an inward spiral until they reach the center. And each one of these segments, they do one segment at a time, one segment at a time with sticky web, and this is going to be their insect catching trap. They work their way around like this, working their way to the center until finally they've gotten the whole thing put together with usually a little gap right at the center. And then they sit in the center and wait for prey to come by. Now the sticky webs are what they want to catch the, uh, uh, the various insects while they move around on these non-sticky radials without getting caught on the sticky webs themselves. And so it's a very complicated way that they move around. Now these sticky webs are usually put together in the evening because they want it up during the night because that's when a lot of these insects are gonna be flying through and in the dark of the night, these webs are virtually invisible. So you can have here a web which is a very obvious web because I'm shining a flashlight on it and then I move the flashlight away just slightly and the web just disappears. It hasn't moved an inch, it ha the web is still there, but it is just gone. And if you are an insect flying around in a, even a moonlit night, you're not going to see that web at all. You're going to blunder right into it and be caught by it, and that's going to become your death trap. 
Now in the morning after this has happened quite a bit, you're now gonna have a lot of gaps and holes where a bunch of insects have gotten caught in it and damaged the web, or if they've been too big blundering through it, they're not going to be caught, but they're still damaging the web. So by morning, there's huge rents and gaps in the web, and this web eventually becomes useless to try and catch anything because there's just too many holes in it. In the morning, these spiders will then deconstruct their entire web. A lot of them will actually eat their own web because they don't want to waste the nutrients that they have produced, and so they recycle it inside their own bodies and get it ready for the next night so they can start a brand new web from scratch and have it perfect, ready to go the next night. A lot of these spiders, every single day, new web, a new web. Now, sitting in the center of your web, Waiting for prey is very handy because you're close to wherever something might get caught, but it's also quite dangerous because a bird can pick you off and certain species of bats specialize in insect, in spiders in their webs. And so this is something that can be a dangerous spot. So a number of them will actually make a little pouch, usually in a cluster of leaves, where the spider itself will then hide next to the web. And then at that point, she will have an access route that she can run out because she has a long guy line from her foot all the way out to the center of the web so she knows instantaneously if something disturbs her web and then she can race out to it and grab it, wrap it up in silk, give it a venomous bite and she has herself her meal. Now all of these spiders are making this basic type of web, but there's a few orb weavers which elaborate on it to a certain degree, adding a little bit of extra thickness to their web in a little weird zigzag pattern. And so this is something that uh, a lot of uh, these uh, Argiope spiders will put together as part of their web normally. And scientists to this day argue about what it's for, but camouflage seems to be the best thing because it tends to break up the fact that there's a big spider in the center of it. And some of these guys match exactly the uh, hackled web that they've put down. It gives them a very good place to just blend in and disappear and a bird doesn't see them and doesn't bother them in this way. So we've been looking at the orb weavers, the basic ones, and this is kind of the, the uh, foundation of webs, so the, uh, something that we can go now and look at some of the strange and different forms that God has designed and put into nature. Here is a beautiful, typical web, just the perfect circular web that you've ever seen. Just, this is something that, you know, just classic circular form. But this one right here has this really thick cluster of all sorts of messy, scraggly webs sticking out from the top. And this is in fact helpful if an insect is flying past, not against the web, but sideways. And they end up banging into this and then they fall down into the web and get themselves caught. So it's basically just giving an extra bit of area for, for insects to blunder into and get snared in that way. Then we have some that are called the filmy dome spiders. This is a close-up of a couple of them, and they build this filmy dome of non-sticky web. And then the spider sits inside it on the very top, right here, upside down on the inside of her dome, waiting for any insect to, rum, uh, to uh, stumble into the top of the dome, and then she reaches through and grabs it and pulls it through. Then we have molly orchard spiders, which are basically an orb weaver type of web, but instead of building it vertically, they're building it horizontally. And then they will hang on the underside of the web and wait for prey to come out and get caught in that direction. 
Then there are the funnel web weavers. Uh, these guys are found in any kind of protected area where there's some sort of uh, overhang or place where they can be out of the way. And then these funnel webs will be able to catch anything that's passing by, crawling along the rocks or flying underneath the surface here. And then when they're in these uh, places underneath a cave or an overhang and they're lit up by this uh, dew, you can see how abundant these spiders can actually get. And they can be quite numerous in some of these well-protected places. Then we have the ones that are funnel webs down into the ground. They actually have a hole burrow in the ground that their tube will lead into, and then they have this flat, non-sticky web expanded out away from it around the hole, and then if any kind of insect comes along and starts to get tangled in that, they race out of their hole and grab it and pull it back down into their tube where they can be protected from any kind of further attack that might come against them, so it's a nice little shelter. Some of them will build their funnel tube up in a tree, and they haven't actually a hole inside a tree that they will extend their flat sheet web away from and they will live inside here and come out and grab their prey and go back inside. Now remember the premise of what we're talking about. Each type of these spiders is building a different type of web. And a sheet web spider doesn't decide to wake up one day and start building an orb web. And vice versa. Each one does what it's always done and what it will always do and its children will keep doing that without any parent training whatsoever. How did they get the instinct to do this if this was somehow random chance, somehow trying to teach them something that they didn't already know? It just doesn't make any sense. So all of these guys are very good examples of that. Then we have some uh, really, really rare spiders, and we're going to look at some of these. This one right here is called the lampshade spider, and it is found only in a few spots in the southern Appalachian Mountains, and this is a very, very difficult spider to find. They are always found on an overhang where there's a nice protected shelter, and this is looking straight up against the ceiling of that. Here's the spider, and you notice that her web is exactly the width of her body, and if it's a small spider, that's how wide it'll be. If it's a big spider, that's how wide it'll be because she's holding on to her web with all of her eight feet. And that is so she can feel instantaneously when something blunders into the side of that web, and then she knows that she can go after prey. Now, this is looking from below, and it doesn't look much like a lampshade here, but if you look from the side, you can see why it's called that. This is their lampshade. The spider is inside here against the rock face, holding onto her web inside of there. And so this becomes obvious if you shine a light on it in the cave or whatever, but if you look at it from directly below, the entire delicate web just simply disappears. They're very, very filmy. Very interesting spider, very hard to find. Then you have another rare species, the thimbleweb spiders. Now these guys are making a thimble of silk facing downward with the opening facing down, and they are then going to attach it in the middle of just a weird little messy cluster of webbing, and inside that thimble is a nice little shelter where the spider is going to live. So here's looking at it from the side, and then you tip it a little bit forward, and you can now see the legs sticking out, and then you get directly underneath it, and you look straight up, and here's the spider with her head and her legs, completely protected inside that thimble. Now this is a spider that does not demolish her nest, her, her web every single morning. She keeps adding to it and it keeps growing and it keeps building and some of these thimble web spiders can get very long because they're always reinforcing it and always making the thimble longer. And here is one that uh, we found in uh, Big Bend of Texas that was six inches long. This elegant tube where she's in there somewhere, I never did see her, suspended vertically by the other uh, threads and that's a very well-protected place. 
Perhaps the most astonishing of any spider web in existence is the triangle web spider. This is an extraordinarily amazing spider that is very rare. It is found in the Pacific Northwest of North America, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, in the temperate rainforests up there. And she basically is just a slice of the orb web, four radials, non-sticky, attached over here to a bush, and then the sticky webs are in between these three different sections. Now, this is a very delicate web. Now, where is the spider in this particular picture? Well, she's over here. And if you don't know where you're gonna look for her, you're very likely to miss her because she is tiny. Here is one compared to my finger, right there. Very tiny little spider. Now, this is the extraordinary part of her web. She builds this web, she gets it all structured like this where it's attached up here and here and here. And then she goes up to this spot of it. And then at this point, she becomes part of her architecture. She severs the web right here, cuts it through. She holds on to the front part of her web with her front legs. She holds on to the branch with her rear legs. And now she becomes a part of the web itself. She's hanging on with her hind legs, holding on to the web here with her front legs as it heads out here. And now she can feel every single movement by that web. As soon as an insect comes across that web and blunders into it, she can actually pull and, and let go to help entangle that web before she then reattaches it, runs out, and gets her meal. This is extraordinary architecture where she is making her own body part of her architectural design. That is a skill that even we as humans do not have, a very elegant form of architecture. Then we have the trapdoor spiders. Now these guys are small to medium to large spiders found throughout the world, but you're hardly ever going to see any of these spiders because they're always living underground in a tube burrow that they have dug, and then they line it with silk. They get this very, very well tightly uh, covered with silk. It can go six inches a foot down. And then at the top, they make a door that has a hinge on one side. And they make the top of that door to be covered with whatever debris is on the surface of the ground. So in this case, it's pine needles. Now this is with the door open, this is with the door halfway shut, and this is with the door shut. If you did not see that open, you are never going to find this particular burrow. It is totally invisible. It is absolutely no way you're gonna find that. And so these guys, the females, live inside these burrows their entire life. They never come out. They only open it up to rush out and grab prey and pull it back into their home. And so they're always waiting just outside the door for the little prey to come by in the dark of night. And they're going to reach out and grab it and yank it in. And they can be quite fast. I was just playing with one of these trapdoor spiders in Australia. And I mean, she was slamming her door shut and slamming it open every time I poked at her uh, webbing. And she was just an incredibly fast little spider and she was just amazing you could hear the click of her door slamming shut it was it was quite astonishing but the males they have a burrow that they build themselves of course and they are going to come out once a year to look for a female and then they start to wander across the landscape until they find a female burrow and again here is another burrow this one is found in a mossy area and this one is wide open and this one is half shut and then it is totally closed find the burrow if it's not if you don't already know where it is how do the males find the females' burrows? We really aren't sure about that. They seem to smell it or something, we're not sure, but it is truly a very amazing animal living inside their trapdoor burrows. 
So with, with all of these spiders, I mean, I've shown you a lot of spider pictures and I could show you a lot more. Each spider group is making a different type of web. Each one is doing something special, unique, that helps them survive. And they're not changing and they're passing on what they know to their young through instinct. And there had to be, for evolution, a first trapdoor spider that somehow decided, I'm going to make a trapdoor spider uh, burrow today and I'm going to tell my young how to do that and it's going to become instinct in a few million years. It just doesn't make any sense. All right, so now we get to the final section, the greatest animal builders. This is what you've all been waiting for, the ultimate versions of these various animals, the absolute masters of design. We're going to start with the birds. The greatest bird builder is perhaps the bowerbirds of Australia and New Guinea. These birds have a variety of different species. They're found in the bush and the jungle. And these guys are incredible architects, but it's the male who's doing all the architecture. This is a regent's bowerbird. This is actually a very rare form to find that uh, is very difficult to find unless you know exactly where to look. We were lucky enough to see these in Australia. And uh, this guy, like the other males of the each individual species, are making a bower. Now, what is a bower? Well, this is a bower. It is a row of sticks and debris that they put, depending on the species, in a variety of different designs. And it's got this passageway running through the middle. And it, this one is made by the satin bowerbird, a whole bunch of sticks placed vertically into the ground on either side, making this nice little tunnel. And then the male is going to sit inside this tunnel, and he is going to sing and call, and a female is going to come by and look at him. And she's going to look at his bower. And she's going to look at the artistic design that the male exhibits in the amount of debris that he puts around his burrow. Each species likes something different. The, this one right here likes a lot of white, and so they put together shells and bones and various debris, and so that's their design that they're going to put in. And the female comes along and she looks to see if it's acceptable to her tastes, and then she may mate with him. This one right here is the satin bowerbird, and they like blue. And so they go out across the landscape, and they look for anything blue. And so they find themselves bottle caps, and plastic spoons, and trash of various sorts. And they bring it from all over the landscape, and from every trash pile, and from your front porch, if you were careless enough to leave something out. And then they place it in artistic places around their bower. And then the female comes along, and then she looks, and she she sees, is there enough blue there? Oh, I don't think so. I'm going to look for some more blue. And she goes off to the next place. And if she sees enough blue, she might be interested. And then she's going to check out his bower. And if his bower is really good, well put together, then she might accept him. And so the amount of blue trash that he can put, put together is the ticket to the female's heart. Each species does something different. Each species likes different colors. Each species likes different textures. And here is one that is found up in Papua New Guinea, the ultimate of the bowerbirds. They have a tr sapling tree trunk that they build a huge mound of debris of, of nest material around. And then they pile up outside the front porch. There's only one opening. Outside the front porch, piles of colors. And they're using plastic if they're near humans, or shells, or mushrooms, or or berries, or flowers, or whatever, and they're piling it up into certain colors. Red goes here, green goes here, purple goes here, and each then female has to come along and decide if it's pretty enough to meet her expectations. Some of these males will actually collect live iridescent beetles and heap them up in a pile outside their front porch. 
But that becomes quite inefficient because then the beetles all crawl away and they have to go retrieve them and put them back in their pile. That gets kind of tedious. But all of these guys are trying to make the best looking bower and if it looks like this, I'm sorry, you're out of luck because it's just not right. And it's, de it's definitely an early male that has never done it before trying to figure out how to do it. And so it becomes very, very obvious which are the experts and which are not the experts. So these bower birds are doing something truly extraordinary when it comes to artistry because each male is actually producing something different from the next male. And so the female actually has a cultural choice where she can make an artistic choice that she likes this guy's display better than that guy's display. A very interesting case not only of architecture but of art. Now the greatest of all insect builders are the termites. <clears throat> and these honestly might be the greatest animal architects in the world. These guys are little tiny insects that are a quarter inch long that are putting together homes made out of mud pellets and these guys are totally blind and only communicate with smell. How are they putting together structures this sophisticated? If they are living in a tree, they will make a large tree bulge on the side of a tree where they will live. If they are in a jungle rainforest where there's a lot of rain, they will actually make umbrellas over their nests so they actually sluice off the rain and keep it from getting over waterlogged. If they are living in a dry desert area, they actually have chimneys that cycle out the heat out of the entire uh, colony and keep it from overheating. They can actually control the temperature and humidity of their inside colonies, and some of these guys in the hottest de deserts of Namibia even put air conditioning vanes at the bottom of their tunnel systems that produce cool air that cools the entire structure. These guys are exceptional architects, and if we compared the structures they build to ours, they would be far taller and far larger than anything we can put together. Some of the greatest architecture of all is made by some of the simplest creatures of all. There are other creatures that do not make towers up, but make mansions down. And the sandy, red-colored soil you're seeing here exposed is only the entrance to an underground mansion built by another form of architect, the ants. Now ants come in a huge variety of forms. Some of the most abundant animals on earth are ants. And each one is making something different, but most of them are underground excavators, digging tunnels underneath the sand. And each of these guys is making something different in their chambers. So some of the chambers will be for their young, some will be the nurseries, some will be the royal chambers for their queens, some will be food chambers, some will be uh, latrines, some will be garbage tips. All of these chambers are very carefully mapped out in the colony. And if you took a colony of ants and you filled it full of a solidifying substance and then knock away all the dirt, this is what it would look like. The incredible structure and complexity of an ant burrow like this is revealed in an unusual cast like this made inside an ant burrow. Very, very complicated, each chamber doing something different for whatever they needed to do. Now all of these guys are basically females, all the ones you've ever seen except for a few uh, flying males are all females, and most of these are doing the work of the excavation, and so a crater like this will lead down into the tunnel system and the females are all busily excavating more sand and bringing it to the surface, and there's very few males in the colony, and there's only one female usually in a colony of ants, and usually she is the, uh, very, very large, she's called the queen, and this is the the large queen being surrounded by her royal retinue. Very rarely are you ever going to see one of these on the surface. Mostly they're very deep protected underground. 
All of these guys have large jaws with which they can grab a piece of dirt and haul it to the surface and then they dump it out upon the mound that is increasingly growing around the entrance to their home. And this can be quite large, but they add to it and add to it. And sometimes out in the prairie states, the harvester ants never stop adding to it. And they make these enormously large mounds and they clear cut all the vegetation around it to make themselves a nice uh, area not full of weeds. And these can be become quite noticeable from distances away where you can be hiking through the prairies and you can use these as um, road uh, markers as you move across the prairie because they're so distinctive and can be seen from so far away. But the ultimate of the ant builders perhaps are the red ants. These are a medium-sized ant and they are found in the Rocky Mountains and Cascade Mountains of the Western United States. And these guys build up a huge mound of dirt that they have excavated just like the others. But then they go into the surrounding forests, pine woods usually, and then they get a lot of debris and twigs and pine needles and they bring it to their nest and they pile it on top of their nest so that soon they have an enormous mound that can be four feet tall and six feet across. And inside this can be hundreds of thousands of ants living inside this one colony. And they can be swarming across the surface of these mounds. They're very vigilant. And these guys are biters and you cannot get very close to them or else you're in a lot of trouble. And so these guys, they get very agitated if you get too close and they're very well defended in their protection of their burrow. So here's a mound found in the forest, and this is impressive enough, this huge tower of debris that they have built up. And this one colony by itself will have several hundred thousand. But what you don't see in this picture is that there's another mound over here, and another mound over here, and another mound over here. We were in one part of the forest near Mount Rainier in Washington where there were dozens of these mounds within sight at any given moment. And this was in an entire empire of ants spread out through this forest. Sometimes they were a double mound like this close together, but usually they were scattered out over a few dozen feet. All of these were in very large, and here is the least compared to one of them, showing how large they could actually get. These are enormous, enormous mounds. So when we think about the world empires of the past and present, we sometimes don't realize that some of the greatest empires of all are empires like this, the empire of the ants. Then there are some insects which are major constructors of their own material. Wasps like to build their own structures made out of paper. Now the Chinese discovered how to make paper a while back, but wasps have been doing it for 6,000 years. What they will do is they go to a area of wood that is decomposing and starting to rot and then they will scrape off the slivers of wood on the surface and they will mix those wood fibers with saliva and then they will take that wet pulpy mass and then they will lay it out into whatever structure they want to build and as it dries and hardens it becomes lightweight strong paper that they can then build into whatever structure they needed to do. And this is a kind of a weird structure but this is, of course is the much more recognizable wasp nest that is very common across North America. A single queen lays her eggs inside this structure. Each one of those eggs is a new baby, they're ready to hatch out, and then she guards it, and she's the only protector of her nest, and she sits on it and protects it all day. She goes out and feeds herself when she needs to, and when the young finally hatch out, she starts bringing the food to them and feeding them, making sure they're all well fed. Here are those eggs that have now hatched out into larvae, and she's continuing to guard them at this point, but at the time when these finally develop, 
into their uh, the, the pupil stage, they then transform into adults. And now she has a lot of helpers. And from this point forward, she's not going to be alone, but helped out by all her now grown children, which are going to do all the foraging duties and all the building duties. And her duty from this point forward is only going to be to lay eggs and keep the colony growing as fast as possible. So these colonies are, um, can get quite large, but the ones that get the largest are some of the hornet nests. This right here is the bald-faced hornet. This is representative of many different types of hornets, and each one is building a large structure that they will eventually enclose in a globe of paper that will allow them to be very well protected. And so they lay their eggs inside here, they store their food inside here, and then they eventually have a very firm uh, fortress that is gonna be very difficult to access because there is one entrance and only one entrance and they can guard that entrance very thoroughly from any predator might be coming along to bother them. And no one's likely to come into a very well-protected uh, structure like this. All the different layers are where they got their paper. If they got it from this area, it turned brown. If they got it from there, it turned gray. So it's an artistic thing that they have not put any thought into whatsoever. Some of them will actually dig underground a chamber, and then they make their paper nest in that underground chamber, and then they will continue to guard the entrance, and again, nobody's going past that to get to the nest. Yellow jackets are tiny little vultures of the forest. They're out there looking for whatever dead material has died, little rodents or birds out there who have died in the forest. These guys are little vultures to come along and eat the corpses before they spread disease or infection. So they're very important in the natural habitat in which they live. When they're underneath the eave of your house, that's not a good place for them. They need to be out in the woods doing what they're supposed to be doing, not bothering you next to your back door. But this is how they do it. They attach a thin little pedestal and then they start to put layer of layer of cells upon it, continually adding to it, continually growing, until they finally, at the end of the summer, have a very large structure that they've developed and protected and now contains hundreds of individuals. Now, the wasps use paper, and that is a very common form of construction. But there is another form of insect construction, and this is wax. And the honeybees and the bumblebees are the specialists in wax. These are a bumblebee, and bumblebees are these very large, very elegant uh, bees that are found in many natural habitats across the world. And these guys live in small colonies of females, usually only about a dozen, and they will make their chambers of wax underground, and then they will raise their young over the course of the summer. But the ones we really want to look at are the honeybees. These guys are the ultimate of construction when it comes to wax. They take a sample of, of a wax and they make the most extraordinary structures ever. Now in the wild, there are many different types of honeybees, but the largest are found over in Thailand and Southeast Asia, and they are called the giant bees. And they have nests three feet across that they will attach to the underside of a limb 60 or 70 feet off the ground. That's the largest of all the bees, but the ones we're more familiar with are the honeybees, the domesticated ones that make the honey that we all tend to enjoy so much. Now these guys, here's a queen right in the center, all tend to look alike, so she's not much bigger than the others, she's slightly bigger, but they're mostly all workers and they're definitely all females except for a few males. Now in the wild, they make these elegant combs that are hanging usually in an overhang or a tree hollow, and this can be very beautiful to find in a desert area, but mostly 
we are familiar with them in their upright combs that we have given to them to artificially give them some place to live. Now you will notice the structure of these are all hexagons, and you notice the structures of the paper wasps were all hexagons as well. That is because the structure hexagon is the most efficient use of materials to strength of any physical structure that they could make. Not circles, not triangles, not squares, but hexagons use the least amount of material while giving them the greatest strength and ability to store the most honey pots as well as chambers for their young. A structure like this, the wax can actually support 25 times its own weight. It is so very strong. Now they're using these to store two different things. They are storing their babies in here because they will, the queen will lay her egg and then they will seal it off and wait for it to hatch and then they will have the larva growing up inside of there. But the other way that they are storing stuff is for honey. So a female bee worker comes out to her flower and she drinks up a bunch of nectar and then she flies back to her colony and then she mixes that nectar with her own saliva and then she sticks it in those chambers and that becomes honey. So every time you eat honey, remember that you're eating bee spit. It's something to think about. Know what you're eating. <laughs> but the structure that they are putting together and storing these various things on are just about the most amazing physical structures of any insect you can find. So those are the insects. And now our last animal of all, the one that you probably all thought of when you were thinking of animal architects, the beaver. This is the most famous of all animal architects because these guys build lots of stuff and they do so industriously and they're busy as a beaver. And that is not a cliche. They are very, very busy. These guys are aquatic rodents and they swim around underneath the water's surface and on the surface and they have thick insulating fur that keeps them warm and sometimes frigid waters, and you will notice that their eyes and their ears and their nose are on the top of their head. So they can sink down beneath the water surface with just the very top of it exposed, and they can still smell, see, and hear what is going on around them. So it's a very efficient design for an animal that lives underwater. They have a flat tail covered with hardened skin, and this is what they will use as an early warning system to the other beavers, because if danger comes by, they take that tail and they slam it on the water surface as hard as they can and immediately all beavers in the area know that there is danger afoot, watch out and pay attention. They do not use this to swim with, this is not a propeller, and this is, not a, this is just a way of warning other beavers of danger. They're actually using their hind feet to swim with, they have webbed feet and they kick with their feet, and this is a very efficient way for them to maneuver underwater. Now the teeth of a beaver look very strange. They're bright orange, what is going on with that? This dark orange uh, teeth structure is due to the fact that the front of their teeth are full of iron. The mineral iron is actually in their tooth. It makes it extremely hard, hard tooth structure. But the back of their tooth, behind on the inside of their teeth, are not full of iron. They're actually two different parts of their tooth. The front part full of iron, the back part not full of iron, and white and orange. And so the white part of their tooth is softer than the orange part, and it wears down quicker. So they have a constantly self-sharpening chisel set of teeth that they can always have the sharpest possible to cut into the wood. A very special design that by itself, we could look at that, and talk about for hours how evolution can't account for that. 
All of these teeth structures and the very durable uh, ability for them to eat wood is because they are wood-eating specialists. That's their main food source. And so they gnaw into these tree trunks and they cut into it until they've dug deep enough into it to cause that tree trunk to be able to collapse and fall over because these guys are wanting to get at the leaves and the twigs at the top of the tree. That's their food. And they're going to be able to get that only when the tree falls over. So they cut down the tree and then they start to strip off all the bark and all the twigs and all the leaves until finally they have just the only the core of the wood left behind. At this point they're going to take that core and use it for building structure because they've eaten everything else. They now take the large branches and the inner wood of these trees and they transport it to wherever they need to build something as part of their daily routine. Now if the tree is right next to water when they cut it down, it falls into the water and then they're able to strip it off quite easily and it's very uh, efficient for them to do so. But if it is away from land, if they've cut down all the trees next to the water, now they're going to be a little bit more in trouble because they're going to have to go a bit of away from the water's shore. And they are very clumsy animals, they're awkward on land, they do not want to be away from the safety of the water and so they will very uh, carefully choose when they do that so predators can't attack them. And they have another architectural gift to help them in this way. They are diggers of canals. They start to excavate a canal from the lake shore and they start to work it into the surrounding land and they can go 20-30 feet from the lake shore to get to where they need to and it will fill up with water and then they cut down their tree so that it falls into the canal and then they are able to float the tree out into the lake without having to drag it through all the brush and debris in their way and this gives them a very easy way to get the trees to where they need it to do. That by itself is an amazing form of architecture to help them out but now of course they're going to do something very special with the wood that they have compiled out in the lakeshore and that is make themselves a dam. Now why are they making a dam? What's wrong with the stream the way it was? Why do they need to mess around with that particular stream with a lot of extra effort? Well, they need the water behind the dam to be a certain depth. And if it is a shallow pond or if it is a creek, it's not deep enough. They have to raise the water level surface to make themselves a home. And so to do that, they are putting together these very wide and large dams across the river, across the pond, and then the water will start to back up behind it. Now to do this, they are taking very carefully selected branches and placing it in very thoughtful ways in very specific positions. And then they're packing it all full of mud so so it's waterproof and then the water is not going to be able to go anywhere but over the top of it and so the water builds up and it builds up until finally you have this very large pool that is now developed behind the dam. And they never stop working on it, they're constantly tweaking it, making sure it's in good condition and if a storm comes through and breaks a part of their dam, the first thing that happens when there's any sound of running water is all the beavers in the area converge on the sound of running water because they've got to plug the leak in the dam. And so this can be very elaborate and very large. A single dam can weigh 50 tons and can stretch hundreds of feet. And in fact, there is a dam up in Alberta which actually goes thousands of feet and is seeable from space. It is the only form of animal architecture that can be seen from outer space. So now, why are they doing that? This is why they're doing that. They need the water to be a certain depth so that they can make their home. All of this is just so they can make their home. So stage one is build themselves a dam. Stage two is make yourselves a lodge. Now the lodge is where they're gonna live. Inside this pile of, of sticks is a hollow chamber above the water surface. 
but there's no entry to it above the water's surface. The tunnels that lead into it go underwater. They can only get in and out beneath the water's surface. This gives them very strong protection. Here is one that the water level used to be here, but it has been drained. And now you see the opening to their tunnels that lead up into their chambers going to where their inside chamber actually is. So very few predators can swim underwater and come in, and virtually no predators can dig through this because it is so tight and so dense that you're never gonna be able to pry it apart if you're any type of predator trying to get at these guys. So it is a very firm fortress for them to live in. Very elegant way for them to avoid predators as well as temperatures. Because they live up north, up in Canada, up in cold places where it gets very cold in the wintertime. And so when the water comes, when the water freezes in the wintertime, now you're gonna be safe and warm inside your dam. They can survive when the temperature outside is minus 40 degrees below zero. They're no problem, they're toasty warm inside their lodge. And so here they are living inside here. The water has yet to freeze, but it's gonna freeze soon. And at that point, that creates a new problem because if this is a solid sheet of ice with no breaks in it, and they're inside here and they swim underneath the water's surface, they're not gonna be able to come up to the surface and they can't go to the shore and they can't cut down any new trees. So they have to have a food source or they're going to starve. But they were able to prepare for that because they have been busily assembling branches all summer and they've taken it underneath the water's surface and they've wedged it into the mud deep enough that they have an entire larder of branches waiting for their wintertime needs for them to go down underneath the water surface, grab a branch, bring it up into their underground, into their lodge chamber, and they have plenty of food to last them. So all these different aspects give them some of the best architectural protection of any animal out there. And if you see a lodge like this covered with green grass, you know nobody's living in it because this is an abandoned one and they are always keeping them up if they are living in it and you always know whether or not beavers are actually there. So beavers are perfect examples of animal architects. They have skills given them by God, built into them from birth. But each individual beaver will build differently based on their own preferences, energy, and ability. Working both alone and together, beavers build complicated structures that give them safe homes and places to raise their young. Without knowing it, beavers display the caring God bestows on all of his creation. So that's our overview of some of the animal architects that inhabit the world around us. We could list many more both on land and sea, but the point remains the same as when we started this presentation. Since animals cannot teach new generations any building skills they have developed, it all must rely on instinct. But how does instinct develop? Science has proven that instinct does not occur in children to a parent who has learned a new skill. There must be something more responsible. Instinct only makes sense if it is a gift from God that varies based on the needs of each species. How those instincts are used will depend on each individual, but their source is clear. If there were only one or two animal architects, evolution could explain it. If there were a few dozen scattered around among the various animals, then evolution would be hard pressed, but it might be within the realm of possibility. But when there are not dozens, but hundreds if not thousands of species that employ architecture, evolution is crushed. Animals use construction both simple and sophisticated to meet their survival needs. 
Evolutionists are creating their own fantasy when they pretend that architecture is anything but the product of God's wonderful design. In our other creation presentations, we have looked at nature and animals from many animal angles to see what they have to teach us about God's creation and the care that he bestows on what he has made. We have seen complexity and diversity and hidden wonders all around us. God's gift of animal architecture is another piece of the puzzle that shows us the splendor and the glory of the infinite God that has blessed his creation with life. So I hope that has been an interesting way to look at an aspect of creation science that perhaps we've never perhaps thought about. Now what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a bit of a break, but we're going to open it up to questions. We are now at uh, 6.35, and we're going to open it up to any questions anybody might have at this point about anything I've talked about today. We are going to be taking uh, our break right now as well, so anytime you want to get up and take a break, that's fine, because we are going to be starting promptly at 7 o'clock with our last meeting. So at this point, do we have a microphone? Does anybody have any questions who wants to ask anything about what we've been looking at? Um, I will be happy to take them. At the seven o'clock hour, if you do not know what I'm talking about, it is called Without This Animal You Will Die and is the most important presentation of the day because it gets very practical and very real to us on a very intimate detail of what we are doing and how we may end up hurting ourselves by losing those animals that are keeping us alive. So I hope you can be able to stay for that. At this point, anybody have any questions? The bee situation has become quite drastic over the last 15 years. The, uh, we're talking about honeybees here, um, is been a variety of different problems that have kind of culminated in a major crisis for bees. Now this has been a major source of concern because bees are pollinators and they provide us with a lot of industry and the way we grow our food and various things like this. So the question is very relevant to many people at this point. And so a lot of money has been thrown on this. And this is what has been found. There are a number of different reasons that bees are dying off, and there's no single answer. Some of them have been found to be infested with parasites, and they have developed, they have gathered these parasites because they're always being hauled to a new location to pollinate various uh, food crops, and so when they move it to a new place, they pick up the parasites from there and over here, and so they're getting a lot of parasites they never got before. The immune system of the bees is also extremely low, and this is very serious because they're not able to withstand any diseases, and a lot of diseases have been killing them because of the uh, lowered immune system. And that has been a very strong mystery as to what is causing the lowered immune system. And in fact, there are a number of reasons again. Part of it is the fact that they are put in a truck in the back of a vehicle and driven down the freeway, and they're shaken to bits. Now that's not extremely helpful for anybody, and it's certainly not a natural form of life for a bee that would normally be sitting in a tree its entire life. And so that is actually causing them stress, and their immune system system has been hurt by that. They are also being exposed to various pathogens that have been causing them to be uh, weakened and damaged in various ways. But here's the real kicker, and this is something that has only been discovered in probably the last two years. In the last 15 years, we have developed new types of pesticides that are called synthetic pesticides. And before we would take something from a plant and turn it into a thing and whatever. But we're actually now creating our own types of pesticides that are specifically targeted for a certain type of plant. And so one of the most lethal that has been discovered is taken from nicotine tobacco, and it is called a neonicotid um, uh, uh, pesticide. 
And this has been used very strongly across America and the world in the last 15 years. And it has been discovered that this is the most lethal form of pesticide for many native bee species, including the honeybees. And so if you spray this on your tree or on the roots of your tree or on the trunk of your tree, that entire tree is now full of this pesticide and a bee comes along and it lands on the flower and it drinks the nectar and it drops dead. It is an instant killer. The entire tree becomes a toxic waste dump for bees. And if you come in contact with it, you die if you are a bee. And we're going to be talking about this a little bit in my next program where we have examples of this. But this is in fact a major, major part of the problem right now. This, uh, the neonicotinoids are also part of this issue where they are sprayed upon crops and then the pollen of those crops will then get up in the air and be blown to new locations and then they will actually infect wild plants and then those wild plants become now infected with this problem as well. And so butterflies, monarch butterflies come along to milkweeds that have been infected with these pesticides and they drink the milkweed uh, uh, nectar and they die. And the population of monarchs have crashed by 90% ever since these pesticides have been used. And so this is a clear one-to-one -one ratio of when these were introduced, monarchs go down. It's wherever it happens, it's been very obvious. So this is a very serious problem and the colony of, a bat, of, of bats, of bees, can be perfectly normal looking one day and you come back the next day and they're all gone, they're all dead. And they've disappeared and you don't know what. And this has been called colony collapse disorder. And so there's a whole bunch of reasons. There's no single reason what is going on here, but there's actually 20 different reasons and there's even more that I could list. But in fact, we're talking about a major crisis based on the interactions of various negative forces on the bee population. And if we lose bees, we lose our food, we lose a lot. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more in the next program. Well, GMOs are definitely a part of it, and yes, and it's, it's, I wouldn't say the biggest problem for this issue, but it is a huge problem. And gen genetically, I hope you heard that, what he said, because everything he said was correct. The GMO crops that we have been developing for the last 20 years are actually a major part of this problem because they're not part of the natural food sources of anything, and they're made up of various combination of plants and animals and stuff like that, and the pollen that they are producing is toxic to various insects, and so actually by the GMO crops that we are making, we are in fact hurting various species in many ways as well. So that is actually another part of it. I'm glad you brought that up because that is another part of this puzzle that is causing bee populations to collapse. So there's serious repercussions here to what we're, what we're doing in various different aspects of our um, economy. Yes? All right, it is an issue. And this is because of two different reasons. Um, as the um, more conservation-minded uh, America and developed nations over the last 30 years have tried to phase out various aspects of some of these things with varying degrees of success. The, farm, the uh, pesticide companies, the Monsantos of the world, have said, okay, if we can't sell it in America anymore, we're going to sell it in the third world countries. And so, in fact, we are exporting now these various lethal toxins to some of the places where they can least uh, stand it and forcing them to use it. And in fact, Monsanto is one of the biggest uh, killers of people as well as animals because they're forcing these people to use stuff and food crops which are not self-sustaining and are in fact causing 
causing major collapses of, of uh, food economies around the world. So this is actually a very serious problem, um, and so you're probably getting more pesticides now in a place like that because there are more restrictions becoming developed in America and other places like that. So yes, it's very difficult to find clean sources of food anymore. It's very difficult in our very corrupted society. Yes. Okay, monocultural, uh, okay, um, it has not affected honeybee populations per se. It, what it has affected is wild bee populations. Because when we look at a landscape, the honeybees are something we brought from Europe. And we use them for, to uh, pollinate our crops, and they're out there doing their stuff when they go wild. But actually, the ones doing the bulk of the labor are wild bees. And these guys are usually smaller and less obtrusive than the honeybees. And so you could be walking through a field, and you could be surrounded by 20 different species of native bees, and you won't even notice them because they're little small guys just doing their thing. And those are doing the bulk of the pollination of plants. And so when we build a monoculture food crop in an area in North Dakota, or Kansas or wherever, and we're putting up one type of plant, that means there is no diversity of plant life to support a healthy diversity of bee uh, species. And so then we truck in our bees and we have them do what they're going to do. But the wild bee populations have no food available and they are crashing around the world in many places as well. So yes, they do affect not the honeybees, but the native bees, which are in many cases more important than the honeybees to keeping our entire ecosystem functioning. And so that is actually a very real problem of monocultural crops because when you have a field of corn next to a field of corn next to a field of corn, well, that's not going to support many different types of animals. And so that is a, a serious problem as well. Okay, I do not know much about that particular topic, so I'll just be honest and say I do not, I know that it exists and I know there are various issues, but I do not, I would not speak with authority on it, so I'm not going to just blunder around with a half answer. Okay, this gets into another one of my programs where I talk about the predation that exists in nature. Where did that come from? That's called red in tooth and claw. And it asks where did the predators come from and how do they fit into the ecosystem that we have now compared to the way it was in Eden. In Eden, there was no death, there was no killing, there was no predation. I mean, you were not gonna find any way of uh, killing anything because everything was safe from everything else. Now, when sin comes into the world, death becomes an instant part of sin. And we'll be talking about this a little bit more in our next program, but uh, I really go into it in my, that other program, where why we have predators actually matters. Now, the uh, structure of our world, perfect world, no death, no decay, no need for any sort of population control in Eden changes drastically as soon as death enters the picture. Now you have animals breeding, and now you have building up of populations, and now you have limited food sources. So if you are a herbivore, a rabbit or a deer or an elk out there feeding upon grass, there's a limited amount of grass that is available. And if you have 20 elk, that's fine, but if you have 2,000 elk, there's not enough food for you to eat that much food. And so the population becomes too large for the food availability. It ends up starving to death, getting diseased, becoming weakened, crashing, and you have this cycle of boom and bust that takes place from that point forward. Now, in this sin-filled world, death is a reality. You can't get away from it. It's going to exist until the earth is made new. And so you have to have a structural way of managing death and keeping it from taking over the entire thing. And so this is where predators come into play, because if God had not made predators at the time of sin, 
all the world's ecosystems would have eventually disintegrated through the overpopulation of the herbivores. But because predators are there in a smaller percentage than the herbivores, doing their job in keeping the predator, uh, in keeping the herbivores under population control, now you have a system which can be managed by those predators. And so in fact, predators become a crucial part of maintaining a sin-filled ecosystem without it self-destructing. So in fact, predatory animals are something that God had to have made at the time of the fall, or else it would have been even worse than it now is. And so Satan is not responsible for the predators. God is responsible for the predators because it would be much, much worse if there were no predators. And Satan is going to make this world any better than he can uh, any way avoid. And so predators are a natural part of the ecosystem as long as death exists. Now that makes them a useful and important part of God's creation. So all the structures we were talking about with spiders eating insects, if we did not have those spiders eating insects, we would be this deep in insects. And that's just a reality. There's just too many insects breeding and we need something to keep them down. And so God made the spiders to have webs to be able to catch those insects or else we would not be in any good shape whatsoever. And so there a lot of these structural things that we've been talking about with the various different animals which are present Predators, it is part of God's plan that they be able to build. And so the structural ability of a predator is just as valid as it is of an herbivore. And in fact, some of the more sophisticated animals are predators because they have to think and they have to know how to catch their food, where a deer can just go out there and, oh, there's food I can eat. And it doesn't require a lot of brain power, where a predator needs a lot more sophistication. And that's why a lot of the animals we looked at today were predators. All right, that is a very good question. And I have read a lot of books on evolutionary points of view. And I have listened to lots of David Attenborough. And I have listened to lots of nature programs from all over the place. And I hear a lot about instinct, nonstop. I have yet to hear any coherent explanation of instinct, how it developed. And so I don't know the answer to that. Now, if there's some guy in an ivory tower somewhere in academia who has written a defense of instinct from an evolutionary point of view, I haven't seen it. So I do not know the answer to that question because I don't know what they would say. They never give an explanation for it. And so it's something that is one of those black boxes of evolution that they don't want to talk about because it is a major weakness of what their theory is. So I don't know what they would say because I've never heard them say it. <laughs> this media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.